starting in verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into, the, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here we have 15 verses, and there's a lot here. But uh, to distill it into a single thought, what this passage teaches us is this. Yahweh, the Lord, is an abundantly good God who gives lavishly according to his steadfast love. That, most essentially, is what our passage teaches to get today. And we see God's goodness in this text as we read about the three precious gifts God gives to man in the day of his creation. And you should see these on your outline. First, God gives beautiful goodness, and then God gives needful wisdom, and then third, God gives delightful fellowship. So starting with verse 10, we have the first precious gift of God. God gives beautiful goodness. Verse 10, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. Now, we were introduced to this garden called Eden back in verse 8 as the place where God had put Adam and where he had caused trees to grow to provide food for him. So now, at this point in the text, we have the land God had made and the trees he had planted. And so what's the number one most important thing that you're going to need to sustain that growth? Water. So verse 10 describes how God provided the number one most important need for life in the place where he put Adam to live. Now, looking a little closer and a little deeper, there are a couple of things to note here. First, that this need for water being met didn't depend on Adam. 
It was simply there as God's good provision in the garden. Secondly, and this is even more striking if you think about it, what is described here is actually the reverse of the way things are now. This is the reverse of the way things have been since the flood. You see, the way water is supplied now is through precipitation from the sky. And when it rains or snows, that water supply gathers from the many diverse places where it lands and slowly runs together to become small streams or tributaries, and then eventually those combine to form a large river. So what is described here is somewhat jarring. It's strange. It's literally contrary to nature for today's geography, and it would have been that way in Moses' day and for his understanding of geography also. So what we learn here is that very much unlike today in the situation that we know and experience as it has been since the flood, that when God first created, he made it so that the water needed to bless all creation with life welled up from one single source in Eden, and from there, that life-giving water spread out. And where did it spread out to? That single water source divided to become four rivers, verse 11. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, so what's with all of the names and unusual words in those four verses? Basically, what we see here is that God's provision of life-giving and life-sustaining water reached out from Eden to the entire known world. That's the point of the rivers and the places named. This single source of God's goodness to water the earth was constant. It was a steady flow, and it reached out to constantly water. And remember, this was a major concern for people who frequently lived in fear of drought. This single water source reached out to give the necessary blessing of life-sustaining water to all of the known earth. So that's the deal with the names of the places and the rivers. Now, in those same four verses, what about the gold and the bdellium and the onyx stone? Why are those mentioned? Well, we've seen that God provided the basic and hugely important need for water for the whole earth. And for functional purposes, that would have been enough, right? A steady, life-giving, and life-sustaining supply of water for the whole earth. But then, in addition, we read of gold and gemstones. And whether these were onyx and something called bdellium, or pearls, or possibly emeralds, as other translators have guessed, what exactly these are is really beside the point. The point is that God spread his goodness and his provision from Eden to the far reaches of the known world, not just as an austere meeting of basic needs, but as a willingness to provide beauty that would thrill the heart and enrapture the soul. You see, there are elements of creation that God intends for our exhilaration and for our excitement and our wonder. Have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon? How does that feel? Have you felt the boom of a thunderclap that came almost at the exact moment of the lightning flash? Have you held in your hand or had placed on your finger a piece of jewelry made of the most precious metal and the hardest and yet most light refracting stone? How did it feel? 
In a moment like that, does your heart pump a little faster? Does the look on your face involuntarily shift to a smile? Or losing all control, does your jaw drop? Friends, God means for us to marvel at things that are marvelous. I know that I don't need to point out how sinful our experience of many of these things can be. We have the capacity to lust after treasure in ways that lead us to great sin. But repentance doesn't look like not caring about things that God made to capture our wonder. Repentance looks like moving back towards that childlike capacity we talked about earlier. To so glory in common beauty and God's repetitive designs that things that are truly marvelous become mind-blowing in a way that causes our hearts to rejoice and to worship the one who gave them. Friends, God has given all things, including gold and gemstones and every other good thing he created for us richly to enjoy. He is glorified when we enjoy them for his sake. Isn't God good? This is who he is at his very core. God gives not just sufficient goodness. He gives beautiful goodness, and he gives it for our enjoyment. Now look again with me at our text in Genesis. Verse 15 is something of a transition verse. It kind of bridges the section ending in verse 14 with the next section. Look at verse 15. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now the first thing I want you to see here is something I mentioned briefly in my last sermon in Genesis. Notice the term used for God at the beginning of verse 15. In your Bible, it probably reads, The Lord God with Lord in all caps. And as you may know, that wording represents God's covenant name, which is how I read it, the name Yahweh. And as God explains to Moses in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, his name Yahweh represents his covenant faithfulness and love and loyalty. And what I pointed out last time is that there is a shift from Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2 and how God is referred to. In chapter 1, repeatedly, 35 times, it was just God, Elohim, creating and speaking. But beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, 11 times in chapter 2, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, every single time in chapter 2. And this is important, especially in verse 15, because what Yahweh is doing here is showing his covenant love for the world by placing Adam in the garden. And let me draw your attention just for a moment to the last part of the big idea at the top of your notes page, that God gives lavishly according to his steadfast love. Now in the ESV, every time you see those words, steadfast love, or in the NAS, the word loving kindness, the Hebrew word there is the word hesed, which is connected with God's name Yahweh. And what you could say by understanding the way those things relate is you could say that God's name is Yahweh because he is full of faithful, covenant-keeping, steadfast love. But you could also say the reverse is true, that God is full of steadfast love because he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So why do I belabor this point? Because this is absolutely crucial in understanding where things are going as we move into these next two sections of text. We've seen so far how God shows goodness, and not only that, he shows beautiful goodness to his whole created world, welling up from one source in Eden. 
But let me just say that compared with what we find in verse 15, the provision of water is nothing. The way Yahweh is really going to show his covenant love for his whole creation is by placing man in Eden as his image and through his command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to spread the blessing and goodness of God's image to the whole creation through the good and righteous reign and rule of man over that creation, spreading out across the whole earth. That is the plan, that man as the image of Yahweh would spread out from the single source in Eden to be a blessing to the whole earth. Now, one more thing to notice along those lines in the details of verse 15, the words work and keep. This is God's summation here of the man's function in the garden and in creation, and it fits perfectly with the idea of man mediating God's goodness to the whole earth. Now, this becomes clearer when we come to Leviticus and Numbers. When Moses uses these words together, he is referring to a priestly function. You see, just as Adam was to mediate God's goodness to the whole earth, so were the Levites as the tribe set apart for priestly service to Israel. And in a similar way, Israel was to be a nation of priests to God. And likewise, the church, and we know this one well, it's part of our mission statement as a church, the church is to be a holy priesthood according to 1 Peter 2. And so we can follow that thread, but all of that is getting a little ahead of ourselves. For now... The question before us is this, how does verse 15 serve as a bridge to the next sections? We can put the answer to that in the form of another question. How would Adam have successfully fulfilled the charge to spread out from Eden to mediate God's goodness to all the earth? How would Adam have fulfilled that purpose? In order to fulfill his purpose, Adam needed two more things that he didn't yet receive at this point in the narrative, starting with our second precious gift. Number two, God gives needful wisdom. Look at verse 16. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So we've seen, first of all, that God gives beautiful goodness. And with that, we've seen that man is the consummate feature of God's good creation. With man's creation, not only was everything God created in chapter 1 good, it was very good. And the man, Adam, God puts in the garden to carry out his purpose of spreading his goodness through his image throughout the entire earth. But with these opening words of verse 16, we find that there is something very basic that man will need if he's to accomplish this purpose. Man needs instruction from God. Man needs wisdom. Basic wisdom for life. Basic wisdom if he's going to mediate the goodness of abundant life to the entire creation. Now you may have noticed I used the word basic a number of times there. Most of you are very familiar with this account, right? It's normal in children's Sunday school for this to be one of the earliest stories kids learn that God told Adam and Eve not to eat the apple. And what did you always think about that? I think if we're honest, if I'm honest anyway, I always thought it was a little bit silly. I mean, come on, it's so simple. It's so basic. And of course, I've sort of chided myself because I know that hindsight is 20-20. 
I probably would have eaten the, forbid eaten the forbidden fruit too. And that is true as far as it goes, but I think it's more than that. The choice in front of Adam was basic, but it's no more basic than it was for Israel or than it is for us. Listen to some of God's words through Moses in Deuteronomy 30. God says this to his people. This commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. This word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and death. So choose life in order that you may live. Now, the, the Apostle Paul applies that same text in Romans 10 to basically say the choice in front of us is just as simple. Will we embrace Jesus or no? Will we choose Jesus or will we choose our own way? Just like Israel and just like Adam, will we choose life or will we choose death? For Adam, for Israel, and even for us, it is that basic. It always has been. So, why does God make this so basic? Why is it so simple? The seemingly obvious choice between the life of all the abundant trees and the death of the one forbidden tree. And I think the answer lies not in the fact that we were made to be, or it lies in the fact that we were not made to be wise in ourselves. By nature, we are so simple and not wise that we require very basic instruction. And think about this. This is Adam before the fall, and he needed this basic instruction from God. So let's look. What is the first instruction here? It concerns what Adam was allowed to eat. You see, Adam didn't even know what to do about one of his most basic needs until God told him. And this is a truth that each of us must apply, and we must apply this to every part of our lives. What should I do with my hands? I don't know until God tells me. What should I do with my feet? I don't know until God tells me. What should I do with my mouth? I don't know until God tells me. If you doubt this at all, think about Jesus. Jesus was fully human, right? Human without sin. And not only was he fully and sinlessly human, he was also fully God. But did Jesus live as though that were enough with an attitude of, I got this? No. If you know your Bible at all, you know that Jesus lived his entire life as one who was utterly dependent on God's word. Jesus was a man of constant and earnest prayer. Why? Jesus knew that in his humanity, for the task his father had given him, he was helpless without his father's needful wisdom. If that's true of Jesus, then of course it was true of Adam, and it's all the more true of us. We do not know what to do, period, until God tells us. Now look again at God's instructions. They're so simple, and not only that, they are so good. Verse 16, Yahweh says to Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now this is beautiful, and it's going to be important to remember this when we get to chapter 3. God says to Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. 
Now, there's a doubling up of the verb eat here for emphasis. Not just eat, but this is a good translation. Eat freely. In effect, God is saying this to Adam. Here, I've made all of this for you. Look at all this goodness. Adam, my son, the one I love. Adam, eat your heart out. This is all for you. Isn't God good? Such generosity from God to his creation and here to Adam specifically. What provision. But there is something else that Adam needs. You see, as God's instructions here imply, Adam has a will. What must Adam do with his will? And of course the answer is, Adam doesn't know what to do with his will until God tells him. And so in verse 17, God tells him, Adam, as the one who rules and reigns over the creation, Adam must submit his will to the one who created him and loves him and will give him everything he needs and more. Listen to God's instructions requiring Adam to submit his will to God's. Verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now this command in verse 17 is sort of the mirror opposite of that in verse 16 in a couple of ways. First, whereas verse 16 emphasizes the enormity of God's positive provision from any and all of the trees you may freely eat, you may eat to eat, verse 17 indicates that there is only one tree that is off limits. God's restriction pales in comparison to God's provision. Second, the same form of intensification is found in the final verb. If Adam refuses to submit to God's will, he will die to die. There's the repetition of the verb. If Adam disobeys, he will surely die. Freely eat from an abundance and live, or eat the one thing prohibited and surely die. Such a simple choice with such high stakes. And note, this is the point here. With these instructions, God has perfectly met Adam's need for wisdom. God's needful wisdom given to Adam in such simple and understandable and generous terms. Adam was simply to delight in and to live by all of this goodness God was giving in his creation, simply submitting his will to God's wisdom. And by doing so, man, as God's image, living by God's word, would be God's blessing that would spread from a single source in Eden out to all the world. But there was something still more missing. We've seen two precious gifts, beautiful goodness in creation and God's needful wisdom. But even with all this, could Adam by himself serve as the image of God whereby God's goodness would be mediated to all the earth? The answer is no. And this brings us to the third precious gift God gives to man in the day of his creation. God gives delightful fellowship. Verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now it's important to see a major break in flow here. 
You'll remember from chapter 1 that God has given commentary on his own creation seven times so far. Six times that it was good, and the seventh time that it was very good. So for him to say here, not good, is a major contrast, a major break in the flow. And remember, this is pre-fall. And men, this should humble us. According to God's own evaluation, there is a deficiency in his creation, something that is not good even before the fall. And this is such an emphasis here. God God not only speaks this as his commentary, he goes on in the next two verses to show Adam that it's not good. And he does this by bringing each and every living creature before Adam as if to show him that while they all had their mates, none of these creatures could serve as a companion literally a helper who would correspond to Adam. God was graciously teaching Adam firsthand through this object lesson that by himself, Adam was deficient. And then, in verses 21 and 22, God wonderfully supplies the deficiency. He removes one of Adam's ribs and fashions it. Literally, the word is he builds it into a woman. Now, before we continue on to the rest of the text, let's take a moment to consider more closely exactly why it is that Adam by himself was deficient. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Now, there is the practical matter that Adam by himself couldn't multiply. Adam physically needed Eve if he was going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in order to mediate God's goodness to the whole creation. And I think that one's probably kind of obvious. But one that's maybe a little less obvious, I think, is arguably more important. Do you remember when I mentioned last time how Moses has an intentional interplay between the singular and the plural names and pronouns when he says back in chapter 1, then God said, singular, let us, plural, make man in our image. And then verse 27, in the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. As I said, this interplay hints at who God is eternally and most essentially. What was God doing before he created, so to speak? For all eternity, and we gather this in part from Jesus' prayer in John 17, for all eternity, God has been a father loving his son through the fellowship of the Spirit. And this, I think, is the fundamental reason why it is not good for man to be alone. By himself, Adam had no way to truly image a God of joyful, loving, self-giving fellowship. The only way Adam was really going to be like God is if he had another corresponding to himself, to whom he could give himself in fellowship for their mutual enjoyment and delight. Now, sometimes with a concept like this, it's, it's helpful to see the contrast Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Man needed the fellowship of a plurality, and as we'll see, a unified plurality, in order to not do what's bad there in Proverbs 18.1 and seek his own desire. So, with God's creation of woman, that deficiency is supplied. He can now have mutual and enjoyment and delight with another who corresponds to him. And that, I think, is why Adam bursts into poetic song when he wakes up and God brings Eve to him. Verse 23. 
The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, as I read that just now, these words might not seem like anything special. But I want to point out, and I won't take the time to explain all of these and how they're present here, but Adam uses at least four features of Hebrew poetry in just this one verse. There's parallelism, there's assonance and wordplay, there's chiasm, and there's verbal repetition. One commentator noting these features of the text says this, Adam's exclamation concentrates all eyes on this woman. Adam was awed and overwhelmed and overjoyed at this good gift of delightful fellowship from God. Adam on his own was deficient, and he knew it. God had taught it to him firsthand. And in case you're wondering, this truth applies to every person, married or single. It's not just the fact that Adam now had a wife, but more fundamentally that he was no longer alone. This meant that he was now suited in the fellowship of plurality to mediate God's goodness to the whole earth. Next, we find in verse 24, Moses breaks into a bit of commentary, linking the law for marriage to the creation account of Adam and Eve. He writes, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, as you might imagine, this verse could provide the basis of a series of sermons on marriage all by itself. Uh, but for now, to keep this series in Genesis from moving too slowly, uh, we'll make just a couple of observations from verse 24. And if that is something that you'd like more teaching on, by the way, Pastor Dan recently preached some sermons from Colossians on husband and wife roles. And I think it was four years ago, there was an eight-part Sunday school series that's available on the website and on the app, all on marriage. So I refer you to those. But for now, just a couple of observations to make from verse 24. First, that God, through Moses, uses Adam and Eve's creation to teach about the fundamental building block of his plan for humanity. And that is this, that God's plan is for the nuclear family based on permanent marriage between one husband and one wife to be his building block for humanity. And here, with that, let me point out briefly, is an opportunity for all of us to remember our need for God's wisdom. What are we to do with our desire for companionship? We don't know until God tells us. What must we do with our sexual desire? We don't know until God tells us. How should we prioritize our relationships? We don't know until God tells us. And here in this text, very simply, God has told us. A man doesn't have the option of moving from woman to woman or device to device to satisfy his lust. We're not allowed to prioritize our parents above the permanent relationship of marriage. None of us is free to make a higher priority of his children than of his wife. No couple is free to reverse God's assigned roles. And this one is, is clear from verse 23 where the man exercises his authority to name the woman. No couple is free to decide that the wife will take more leadership in the home because that seems to better suit how God has gifted them both. 
and I'll throw one in from elsewhere. A woman or a man is not free to reject God's rules for marriage because they so much desire companionship. And one more, and I imagine at the present moment this one will resonate. A whole culture is not permitted to decide that God's definition of marriage, one man cleaving to one woman, can now be modified to accommodate anti-biblical lifestyles. No, without God's needful wisdom, we are fools. We will, and we do, get it wrong. And aren't we good at demonstrating that? Just think of the messy marriage situations that fill the later pages of Genesis. And think further on where we are as a culture since the 60s or so, when it became increasingly popular in this country to reverse what the Bible teaches about faithfulness and marriage and sexuality. Now, for some of you, this is a call to repentance, to stop taking matters into your own hands, to stop taking your own counsel. Friends, see what God has laid down in his word and repent. Submit your desires for sexual pleasure and companionship and authority to what God has said. God's boundaries for these gifts within marriage are binding on you. Submit your will to God's will. Submit your relationships. Submit your urges. Submit your desires. Submit all of it to him. That is the way of life. And that is the way of blessing, including and even especially in your marriage and in your family. Now, as if to emphasize that point, that God's way with God's provision is a recipe for blessing and great joy, we read in verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, you kind of need to take a glance forward to catch the full significance of these words. Beginning just in the next chapter, chapter 3, nakedness becomes almost interchangeable in Scripture with shame and judgment. In fact, this word goes on to be used most often in the Old Testament as a figure for Israel under judgment. Israel is naked, and this indicates their need for God's covering. But here, rather than a need for covering, what we find is total openness. The verb, they were not ashamed, is in a form that is actually better translated. They weren't ashamed in front of each other. They were so pure and so innocent. This is a way of being that we know very little of, even in our redeemed state. This man and this woman were as open and vulnerable as two people could be before each other, and there was no sense that anything at all was wrong. No sense that they needed to take for themselves. No sense that they needed to cover themselves. And why should there be? God had given so generously and in such abundance his beautiful goodness, his needful wisdom, and his delightful fellowship. Adam and Eve had every single thing they needed to fulfill God's purpose of spreading his goodness to his entire creation. Everything was in place for God's glory through his image to cover the earth the way water covers the sea. So what on earth happened? 
How did we get from there where man and woman, adult humans, were full of joy and delight? Where they were uncovered and innocent with no shame, no pretense, no sinful desire? How did we get from there to where we are? For many of us, to where we find no joy in a sunrise. To where we are irritated rather than delighted by a child's laughter. How did we get here? Quite simply, rather than life, we chose sin. We chose death. And with that, we reversed it all. We rejected God's good gifts. We corrupted them all. God's gifts of beautiful goodness soon became objects of sinful lust and coveting. God's gift of needful wisdom soon became the first and repeated object of our rejection and rebellion. And God's gift of delightful fellowship became an opportunity for blame shifting in chapter 3. And then for the first murder in chapter 4. It's devastating, isn't it? How do we get it back? Friends, I hope that you're as encouraged as I am to find that God has explicit plans laid out in his word to restore his original design and that these plans are well underway. Think back to what we talked about earlier, that the situation with a single water source feeding major rivers to supply the whole earth is essentially the reverse of what we know today. For this reason... It is striking when God says in Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14 that Jerusalem, and more specifically the temple, will be the single water source for all the earth during the Messiah's future earthly reign. And in Revelation 22, that the river of the water of life will flow clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this is glorious. This hope of reversal has been applied by Jesus to us even now. Jesus' words from John 7. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Friends, what great hope there is for us here. We who are given to thoughts like, if only I had that, or if only this were taken away, or I wish I could escape. These thoughts, and they turn into words and deeds, these thoughts do the opposite of giving life and joy to ourselves and to those around us. Beloved, we who believe in Jesus have what we need to reverse this corruption even now. We have the Holy Spirit who is closely connected to many, if not all, of the promises, the ones I've referenced and many more, that God will make his people an eternal source of the water of life. And how does the Spirit do this for us? He gives us texts like Genesis 2, 10 to 25. And he gives us instruction like this, and this should be familiar. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the streams of life. And he gives truth-filled commands, almost promises, it is a promise, like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or, even more simply, the exclamatory question, the title of this sermon, isn't God good? 
Christian, here is a basic encouragement for you. When life's circumstances press in and you're tempted to think that God is not being good, lean on the Spirit. Learn this and remember it. You don't know what to do with your thoughts until God tells you. And God is telling you, especially through this text, that he is good. So instead of giving in and saying, even in your mind, I wish I could escape or I wish things were different, force yourself instead to say, isn't God good? With God's help, say and believe what his word says. Preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of this. Your God is right now giving abundantly to you according to his steadfast love even and maybe especially in the things that are hard. Do this even once, and you will be more alive and more of a source of life to those around you. Put this on as a habit, and you will gradually transform into someone who is consistently more alive. By God's grace, you'll become less of a cynical adult who always sees a glass half empty, and you'll become more like a child whose heart notices and even thrills at life's most common blessings. Again, do this. Lean on the Spirit and know that God is good, and you will be more alive, and you will truly become a spring of life and joy to those around you. Christian, this is the promise of your covenant-making God who has given you his Spirit as a pledge of these promises. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, and especially if you don't know that you have a saving relationship with Jesus, listen carefully. What God began in the garden, he is seeing through to completion. God's original plan did not fail. God will place a human king in his specially prepared place. From there, that human king will mediate God's goodness to all of creation through his righteous rule and reign until the glory of God covers the earth as water covers the sea. That day is coming. God's appointed human king, the Lord Jesus, came to earth once already to die for sinners, that is to die in the place of sinners like me and like you. The next time he comes, and he tells us that's coming soon, the next time he comes, it will be in judgment. And so the most loving thing I can think to do is to tell you that truth. And the wisest thing you can do is to cease your rebellion. Friend, you know better than I do the things in this world that call to your heart and convince you that your way is better than God's. I urge you, stop believing what your heart is telling you and submit yourself instead to God's wisdom. You do not know what to do with your eternal soul until God tells you. And he's telling you now, submit your will to his. Now, if you'd like to talk more about that, and I hope that you do, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service, as would many others who are here. So please ask anyone, and I'm sure that someone nearby will be eager to talk and to pray with you.
about these things. And to you, Christian, I say, isn't God good? Your covenant-making and covenant-keeping God is so good. He has given and he continues to give lavishly to you according to his steadfast love. Please pray with me. Father, words are inadequate to express your goodness and your kindness and your patience, your forbearance. Father, I didn't even talk about how when we reversed it all and rejected and rebelled against all of your goodness, you kept giving. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, the only one, to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. I pray, Father, that all of your goodness and supremely Christ on the cross would be held up in front of our eyes. Father, that you would bring this text to our minds to correct our understanding of you and to say from our hearts and to say it often, isn't God good? We pray all in your son's name. Amen.